Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Many years ago, I was in a five-star restaurant, and it was at a time when I was still a little bit ashamed of my diabetes, and I hid it. What were you ashamed? Well, when you're different than other people, I think your innate instinct is to hide it. It's also very frustrating. And it's something difficult to explain. And so this happened during that phase in time. And so I went into the bathroom and I took my shot. Um, But it was a small bathroom. I should have realized the door was open and someone could come in. But I finished taking the shot and a woman came in and I just uh, put it away and left the room. And as I was leaving the restaurant, um, I walked by that woman seated at a table with a companion. And as I was walking by, I overheard her lean over and in a whisper say, she's a drug addict. And I stopped and I know that I must have turned red. And at first I was ashamed and then I got angry. I walked back to her and I said, I'm not a drug addict. I'm a diabetic. And that medicine saves my life each day. Why do you make such horrible assumptions about people? If you don't know something, ask about it. Don't assume that people are evil just because your mind is. And I walked away. That moment has stayed with me my entire life. I feel like there's something in there. There's some, there's some magic you just did when you told that story as concisely as you did. I'm almost crying listening to you say it. And I think, again, there's an ability to kind of reach highs and lows while telling a story and making a point. That's so important for a lawyer, a judge, any communicator. If you were to give one piece of advice on communication and influence, I feel like there's something in there. I understand. Um, and, And I learned this through friends with children. Um, they have uh, studies that in Japan, there are less children with peanut allergies. Well, there's this baby food that has the essence of peanut. It's like a cheese puff, but only made of peanut butter puffs. And the Japanese have been giving it to their babies for the longest time. And their population has less peanut allergies. 
So for the longest time, doctors were, were telling parents not to give their children peanuts, fearful of the peanut allergy, mm -hmm. and likely the result was contrary to what they thought. We were growing a population that wasn't sensitized early enough to peanuts. So I think obviously there's environmental triggers for lots of the things like asthma that, that are more common today than they used to be. But others, I think, can be attributable to just sort of different experiences that are changing patterns in people. And do, you, so, do you think this happens politically where a small, uh, let's say, extreme minority then affects the, the conversation and narrative in the country? Are we rolling, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you an example. Okay. And I think one that's very potent. Civil rights movement. That was led by essentially a minority. There were non-minorities who joined in and were great advocates of the civil rights movement. But it was a minority, just like with women's suffrage, it was a minority of women who spoke up and who beat the drums. And over time, their, grew, their groups grew larger and more people signed on. Now, that, that change in attitude, A, didn't happen overnight, but it started with a small group. How do you that think? That made it grow. And the reality is, however, as large as you may, may make it, you may not always have unanimity. We're finding out that certain civil rights issues are not as important to some people as to others. Um, that probably hasn't changed in history. That probably has existed for the longest time, but groups grow in strength from, they has to start somewhere, and I think they grow in small numbers. Do you think, do you think a group, is, a tiny group, is successful because of a single leader? So there's like some evidence, there's scientific evidence that shows when a scientific discovery is made, usually one person gets the credit no matter how many people worked on it. Do you think the same thing happens with a political movement like civil rights or women's suffrage? Well, yes. I mean, Martin Luther King was the epitome of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s. But Thurgood Marshall was also a leader in the legal profession in that movement. Um, I do think that every movement needs someone to galvanize the cause and to give it a face uh, and someone that people can follow. So I think it's important to have a voice. But it's also very important for people involved to understand it's never one person's project. It's always a conglomerate of different people doing different things that bring around bring a bring around change, but I want, meaningful I, change. I, I I agree with that. Like, and it's the same thing in every. Even if someone's a great baseball player, they still need a good team around them. But I wonder. You always can't if, build a team on one guy. You I, can build the foundation of a team around one person. Right. But you need all the other key players that contribute as well. So, you know, you mentioned having a strong voice and in in your book. So let me let me just let's start let, from the let's, let's back up for a second. <laughs> so I'm really honored to have, and I'll do another intro later, but okay. I'm really honored to have uh Justice Sonia Sotomayor uh on the podcast. This is an incredible honor for me. We're here at the Supreme Court. Welcome to the show. And uh we're 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 gonna talk about her upcoming book, uh, just ask, be different, be brave, be you. 
Uh, I also highly recommend her other books. Uh, uh, there's a book, it's kind of, would you say this is middle school, high school? The, the it's middle school book. It's intended for fourth to eighth grade. I actually think kids between fourth grade and 10th grade could easily read it and enjoy it. And podcasters preparing for Justice Sotomayor. This is a fast read, the middle school book. <laughs> the beloved world of Sonia Sotomayor. And then you also have uh, a children's book, Turning Pages, My Young Life Story. Young Reader's Book. Yes, it's a, both excellent. Your 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 story is, is so inspirational on so many levels. But one thing you mentioned reminds me of your autobiography. You talked about having a strong voice, a person having a strong voice. And you mentioned when you first began as a lawyer, you were having, or you were, I think it was maybe you were a student, um, you were having trouble uh, presenting a case. And you realized when you stepped back that it was, you didn't have a, a solid, and maybe I'm just my own interpretation, you didn't have a solid vision of the case of how you thought. And it was by piecing together a vision or a voice about how you felt about an issue that allowed you to, to drive the way you would present a case. Um, I, you, I, you may be confusing two different stories, okay. but, but I, because it was when I was a student and I was first writing papers. There's ah, one yes. story about that where it was a history exam, midterm exam, and I was given a, a question and I answered it basically throwing in all but the kitchen sink in facts that I had learned that semester. And the professor, when I went to speak to her, and asked her why I had scored so poorly on the exam, said to me, because you don't have a unifying theme. You have to have a vision of what this historical moment means. And then you have to marshal the facts that support that conclusion. To the extent there are contrary facts, you have to deal with them, but you have to have that unifying theme. Well, I had done that in debate club and once she said that to me, I said, oh, this is just a written debate speech. So that was sort of easier for me to master the idea that we organize our lives around themes, around understandings that we develop about people and about living. And we, we respond to that theme in carrying out the rest of our life. I bet that if I'm, and at some point I will, James, read your book, that I'm going to find the themes of your book and be able to synthesize them into probably a telegraph's worth of information. What's this book about? Maybe you can tell me already. But the point is that that was a powerful lesson for me, which is when you speak, have a point. Um, the second story that I don't know if you were referencing as well was I was started out as a prosecutor um, being very analytical. These, and when I spoke to jury, this is, these are the facts, this is the law, this is why you should convict the defendant. And I lost a case that, at least analytically, I shouldn't have lost. And I went to my supervisor and I laid out all of my arguments and he said, where's your passion, Sonia? I said, what do you mean? I'm a prosecutor, I'm supposed to be independent and objective and, um, and convince the jury by the force of argument. And he looked at me and he said, that's not enough. Mm. People need to be persuaded by passion. They have to believe that you believe the defendant is guilty. So, 
so this this brings up, and I'm sorry if I interrupt. At no, all. no, no, no. This brings up so many questions for me. Um, the first being, uh, you know, so this was the case where uh, the the defendant had committed two crimes. The set the the first one was kind of uncovered when he was caught for the robbery. The second, the second time. time, and oh, you did read my book. <laughs> and these were no brainer cases to you, but. And so this is related to the the history paper from before. How do you go about a developing those those corp? Then this is important for anybody who wants to succeed in any field. How do you? How do, how did you develop those core principles? How does someone go about? Because you have to go beyond the education you had, where you just learn all these facts and cases and precedents and so on. How did you develop or, or this, these core principles to have that unifying theme? You could argue behind, and then part two, which I'll ask. I'll follow up, which is, you know, then learning the the kind of meta level of being a lawyer, which is speaking to the jury and all the skills to uh, to to send that passion to the jury, so they know how you really feel. I understand in your book, you advise people to be confident. That's where you start. You have to develop principles in what you're doing. There has to be a sense of integrity in what you do. And what does that a, mean? Because well, you people have with integrity believe, can believe opposite things. Absolutely. But you have to believe. Meaning you have to believe in what you think is the right thing. Um, now, you're right. Different people have different measures of what's right or even what's important or not important. But whatever you choose has to be something that deep in your heart moves you because you can't move another person unless you're moved and you can't move them unless they can see that this is important to you and that it's meaningful and once you can define that that helps you develop the theme around which you can I, I, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm a door-to-door -door salesman okay but you are selling something Every time you write something, every time you publicly speak, you're taking a position on something. And it should be on something that's important to you and meaningful to you. And you should be able to articulate the why of it. And the greatest measure of success to me is when a person disagrees with me, but still does so respectfully because they can see my passion and understand that it's something that they need to deal with rather than dismiss out of hand. Do you feel this guided your career, like kind of constantly seeking this why as you became, you know, from assistant DA to judge, to higher up judge? To Without Supreme question. Even when it was in private practice, I was completely upfront with my clients. And you didn't take on uh, criminal cases as a result? Well, I don't know if as a result, I think I had had enough in criminal law as an assistant district attorney and I moved into civil practice to learn a different practice area and to understand a different kind of law. But my firm didn't do criminal law, so I didn't have an opportunity to practice it. Um, but within my cases, it didn't mean that if I thought someone had done something, I didn't defend them. But I would be brutally honest with them and very direct, always nicely. But I would say what you did is not something that the law might accept. And I would always explain why. And I would always explain what the probabilities, possibilities of winning were, and then give them the choice. I would tell them I would put on the best defense possible, and I always did. 
but they always understood what their chances were. And I would counsel settlement when it was in their best interest. Um, I still remember one case that I lost. And I had convinced myself in arguing it that I was right, and I called up the client to say, I am so sorry. Um, I feel badly you lost, but this is what the judge said. And the, um, the businessman um, pauses and said, but Sonia, you told me this in the beginning. I have your letter. You told me this was going to happen. <laughs> so um, there is a way of maintaining integrity in everything you do. So I did it as a private lawyer, and I've done it as a judge. And so as a, as a Supreme Court justice, your why now affects history. Like, you know, you, you set precedent for judges for maybe generations ahead. Has well, this- not me alone. I'm a voice on a court, and it takes five of us to have a majority and speak for the court. Um, but I am a voice in that decision-making. And whether you're right, whether I'm part of the majority or I'm part of a dissent, um, both of them live on and can influence people's thinking over time. And has this changed your why in terms of the seriousness of it, in terms of your, you know, coming up with a unified view, not only of a, of a case or, or a region, but now you're thinking of the Constitution and the country? Well, Sandra Day O'Connor once said that no judge wants to be arbitrary and capricious. It doesn't feel good. People think sometimes that judges like playing God. We really don't. It's a very uncomfortable feeling to every judge. And judges know when they're being inconsistent or when they're, when they're drawn to inconsistency. And as a result, for most of us, it's important to have a view of the law that you apply consistently. Otherwise, you're going to frighten yourself with your sense of, you know, I am playing God. I'm not being driven by one principle. I'm being driven by what I feel is right or wrong. And that kind of moral choice judges should not be making. Do you feel you've ever been inconsistent? Or what's an example where you might have been? Well, that, no, because what ends up happening and what ends up happening is you either believe that an earlier position was wrong and you fess up to it and say, I was wrong, or you say, I was right, and, um, and continue down that path. But there was a recent case, not a terribly interesting case, where I had taken an earlier position on the court, and the issue came back again, and in order to make a solid majority and not be the only judge with my idiosyncratic view, I said, I still think I'm right, but I think it's a better service to the law if we have one answer, not the fractured answer of the earlier court that I created. And so I went with the side that I thought was more consistent with my views and gave a majority to that viewpoint. But I would say that was very consistent because maybe you value the consistency of the law above all else. And so clearly the way you presented it, what communicated that vision? The way I presented it. But I am sure there are people who read it and said, this is inconsistent. You Mm. should have just stuck to your guns. Mm. But you're right, because there are principles that come into conflict in all life situations. So so once you realize this about kind of the consistency of a a unified vision, and, you, you know, it's sort of this kind of turning point between an education made up of facts to a real career that, is, is a defining career and an inspiration for many. Um, how did you then think, well, 
did you sit down and say, well, now I'm going to think about what my core values are or what, what happened then? Uh, well, I, I think if I'm understanding your question, how did I develop my career? Yeah. Um, and maybe I'll go back to the beginning. Um, when I was in law school, and I described this in my book, I went to a big private law firm and didn't have a good experience there. And I realized that, A, I wasn't ready for that kind of law practice yet, but B, that it really didn't interest me that much. And so my third year at Yale, I was literally in the library studying one night um, and had to go from the library to the women's bathroom, which at the time at Yale Law School was at the other end of a very long hallway. <laughs> and as I walked towards that area, I saw a sign outside of the door that said public interest panel. And it was a panel of public interest lawyers, some of them quite notable, talking about their work as alternatives to going to a big firm. And I poked my head in and I saw at the back of the room um, some food. And uh, consistent with being a student then, I listened and they were introducing the last speaker and I thought, maybe I should just step in and listen to him and then I can get some food, which I did. And it turned out to be my future boss, Bob Morgenthau. And he talked about the work in his office and how at 23, 24 years old, when we graduated from law school, we would have more responsibility as a lawyer in his office than we would have in any other area of law in which we would think of practicing at that stage in our careers. And that intrigued me. And so when his talk ended, we happened to be right next to each other online and we started speaking and he said, come interview with me tomorrow. And I looked at him and said, I will. And I did. I went and interviewed with him, had a wonderful interview. He invited me to his office and thereafter offered me a job and I took it. This wasn't in my plans. It was a spontaneous decision in the sense of that it wasn't planned. But I do think that you have to plan your life and be willing to stop at a moment and take a new opportunity when it fits within things that make sense to you. Like what excited you once he said, come interview with me? The idea that I would have the responsibility he mm. talked about, that I would go into a courtroom because I had already done one trial advocacy class and one uh, barrister's union, which is a fake trial at Yale. And I knew I was very good in those public speaking aspects. I had debated in um, high school. I'd done a fair amount of public speaking in my life and really enjoyed that aspect of things being quick and quick fired and things being fast paced. It's much suited to my personality. And I had gone to walk around the DA's office and realized this could be exciting work. And I took it. Um, but so that, that moment, not planned, but understood in terms of what I was good at, that it presented an alternative that I should take. And so, so what's interesting too is, obviously you were very good at what you were doing. And there were probably many good people at Yale studying law. Um, and, and, and let's say you were even the best. We don't know, but let's say you were. Part of it too is taking advantage of opportunities. You met somebody on a line and took advantage, not of 
luck because you availed yourself of the opportunity to go to this public interest luncheon. You were standing online with somebody. You said yes. Um, but there's always a combination of being good and networking with good people. And I noticed throughout your career, there's always people who you can go to it for advice. You can go to for networking. That seems always, critically important. You have to select those. You have to look for them. And you have to pay attention when you're doing them. How do you do that? How do you do that? You go into your workplace, you look at the people around you, and you say, who do I admire and why? What are they doing that I'm not sure how to do, but they're doing it well, and I'd like to learn how to do that? And then you go and you volunteer to work for them. And it means extra work. It means that you do what they are assigning you and everybody else is giving you. But you go and seek that person out and even if you have to work later hours and longer hours, you do it to impress them. In short order, and it's happened throughout my career, they'll take you over. They'll want to work with you more because if you're useful and helpful to them, they're gonna wanna work more with you. And that's what's happened throughout my career. So in every setting I've gone to, I've looked for mentors who I think possess skills I don't and skills I want to learn. And I seek them out to A, learn them, but B, to practice with their kind of integrity and professionalism. Because it's not something that comes to anyone innately, it's something you learn. And so you have to pick people that are valuable to you in the sense of being good people doing good work. Do you ever feel there was someone you really admired and wanted to work with but you didn't get the chance or they said no or you, you had to diversify who you were working oh, with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, some people are just terribly busy. Some people don't know how to mentor, by the way. Some people are great at what they do, and but they're not used to explaining themselves or to helping in a mentoring type of way. Um, and you can look at them and you can see what they're doing and you could try to learn from them, but they're not very good at sharing. Um, there are others who are very good mentors, but the substance is not quite what you expected. But sure, I'm not going to mention them on your podcast. But <laughs> I wasn't going to ask. No, 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 no. But there are people that you meet through life and, and you think, well, this could be interesting and it turns out not to be. You have to hit some dead ends before you can get on the right path. And, and you have, it seems like you, you develop along the way this inner compass so that you can say, oh, it might be interesting to work with a public defender as opposed to a big corporate law firm while I'm still young and learning and so on. But I went with a prosecutor's office mm -hmm. and I went with that one because it was Bob Morgenthau and he was a legend then um, and still a legend today. He's retired nearing a hundred years of age and he's still mm -hmm. writing abet page pieces in, in the newspapers on important legal questions like on immigration issues and death penalty issues to be 98, 99 almost, and he's still doing that kind of work. I picked a man with that sense of integrity and energy and passion about the law that I wanted to emulate. And then I would say there's, you know, the hours component in the sense that, you know, you're working, if you work an extra hour a day compared to everyone else, compounding, you know, your skill set every single day, that makes a big difference in a year. I tell every child I come across, you're never successful unless you work hard at it. There's no such thing as instant success. Even the actors and actresses that most people see, they spend years toiling in the pits, learning their craft, 
being taught not just diction, but um, poised, being taught how to memorize lines properly, how to deliver them. All of these skills are not skills. No one's born anything. You have to learn them, and you have to practice at doing them before you become great at them. So, so you've overcome... No, I don't want to use the word overcome. I don't like that word. You've had many challenges along the way to being a Supreme Court justice. You write about your diabetes uh, you were diagnosed with when you were much younger. Uh, this new book that you have coming out, Just Ask, Be Different, Be Brave, Be You. You talk about children with different challenges and different conditions. What does the Just Ask mean in the title? Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Alditcher, would you like to apply to be 
VP of en- entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not that you need it. You're, You're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. What does the just ask mean in the title? Um, Many years ago, I was in a five-star restaurant. And it was at a time when I was still a little bit ashamed of my diabetes and I hid it more than uh, was open about it. Why were you ashamed? Well, when you're different than other people, I think your innate instinct is to hide it. It's also very frustrating. Um, to be playing with a group of kids and all of a sudden your sugar levels lower and you get tired and you're not able to keep up. Um, no, you know it's because of your condition, but it's embarrassing. And it's something difficult to explain to the people around you. And I don't think most children want to be different in those ways. Have things that other kids don't have. Um, some things sometimes people are afraid of are, are catching, and that's really crazy, but people get afraid of those things. But there was a good period in my life where I was embarrassed about being a diabetic, and I hid it. So this is one, this happened during that phase in time. 
And so I went into the bathroom and I took my shot. Um, but it was a small bathroom and I was actually there alone. Um, I should have realized the door was open and someone could come in, but I finished taking the shot and a woman came in and I just uh, put it away and left the room. As I was leaving the bathroom, um, I went back to my table, had dinner, and as I was leaving the restaurant, um, I walked by that woman seated at a table with a companion. And as I was walking by, I overheard her lean over and in a whisper say, she's a drug addict. And I stopped. And I know that I must have turned red. And at first I was ashamed. And then I got angry. And I walked back to her and I said, I'm not a drug addict. I'm a diabetic. And that medicine saves my life each day. Why do you make such horrible assumptions about people? If you don't know something, ask about it. Don't assume that people are evil just because your mind is. And I walked away. That moment has stayed with me my entire life. So when I wrote my adult book, My Beloved World, in 2013, I was thinking about uh, eventually a middle school book because my cousin who's a bilingual education teacher in Connecticut, Miriam, you must have read about her in the book, told me I needed to write a middle school book because her kids found my adult book a bit too overcoming, too difficult to, to get through the whole thing. And she wanted something that was more condensed for them. So hence the beloved world of Sonia Sotomayor, the middle school book. But at the same time, I thought of a young reader's book, and that became Turning Pages. But when the publisher said, how about a young person's book? I said, I'm happy to do one about my life, Turning Pages, but I want to do a Just Ask book. I want to talk about kids like me who are different when we grow up and what our feelings about ourselves are and what we perceive the world thinks about us and our frustrations and difficulties, but also our strengths and the wonderful things that we give to the world. And so they looked at me and said, okay. I said, I'll write the children's, the one children's book if I can do Just Ask. And I did, and am doing Just Ask. It's going to come out in September. And it reminds me a little of your, your 2012 NYU commencement, and I'll, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but you allude to the fact that ch we all have challenges in life and we all have fears, but use those challenges and fears as ways to move forward. And it sounds like that That's book what every kid with a chronic condition in life does every single day. And that's what this book talks about. Obviously, not obviously, but because I'm writing the book and I'm writing about my experiences, the first vignette is on me as a seven-year-old giving myself shots each day, uh, insulin shots each day. And I talk about the courage it took to do that and how difficult that is, but my understanding that that was medicine that saved my life. And the others are about children with all kinds of conditions. And each one of them has strengths, has frustrations, 
and has ways of managing to do great things in life despite these things. And it's not just, to some extent, you know, those conditions are very real and important, but there's also, it's also a metaphor for all of the challenges you've experienced in life. It's not just being a diabetic, where you come from, the differences between you and other, let's say Princeton students, your, 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 the rise in your career and different challenges along the way. I think, you know, it's very important to understand every challenge, God, there's seeds of an opportunity in there. I think of failure as the greatest teacher in life. When you think about the greatest growth moments in most people's lives, it has to do with a tragedy, with a failure, a job not secured, a failed romance or marriage, a, um, an illness with someone who's dear and near to you or the death of someone who was very important in your life. Those are the moments in which we have to dig deep within ourselves to find our strength to overcome not just the moment, but to point ourselves in a new direction and hopefully a better one. And so I always believe when I fail that there's a lesson to be learned. I look for it. I take from it as much as I can. And I seek out how to improve myself as a result. Where do you think that's occurred recently? Or when's the most recent one? Oh, that's most, there's so many moments. Could be a little one. I, 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 not the most recent. I'll, I'll give you one from my book, okay? Um, I had a failed romance um, in the uh, late 1990s. Um, it was while I was a judge, and a group of my girlfriends took me over and did a makeover. So um, they taught me how to apply makeup. They taught me how to, they had me cut my hair a new way. This curly hair is a result of them taking me to a hairdresser who said, your hair is naturally curly. Go make it curly again, which I did. But I talk about, I think endearingly in the book, about being in a store with one of a bunch of my girlfriends trying on clothes. And one of them looked at my undergarments and said, does your mother buy your stuff? And I said, well, she does. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. And they went out and helped me shop for those. <laughs> and, and but these are, you know, that was a failed relationship that was very important to me. Um, but from it, not only did I learn a critical lesson of how wonderful my girlfriends were and how important they were to my happiness in life, that was critical. And you had to give yourself permission to let them in in this embarrassing exactly. moment. Exactly. Permission to do that and permission for me to learn how to be a new me um, and how to present myself in a new way. So it's, it's the just ask also. You had to just ask for help. Exactly. A lot of people can't do. Exactly. And so the just ask, now you know why the just ask title was so important to me. And you know, what? one more thing to unpacking what you said about the your personal experience with the insulin and the restaurant and the woman, the way you conveyed it, the way you told the story, I'm almost crying listening to you say it. Not so much when she says you're a drug addict, because that's that's a little funny. <laughs> but when you say to her, "This medicine sa- saves my life every day," that's poignant. And I think again, this this. It's an ability to kind of reach highs and lows while telling a story and making a point. That's so important for a lawyer, a judge, any communicator. 
I mean, what would you, what if you were to give one final piece of advice on on communication and influence? There, I feel like there's something in there. There's some there's some magic you just did when you told that story as concisely as you did. We had the I high point. I, 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 and I'm trying to articulate what I do because I know I try to do it even in my writing. If you read, I think, my most moving descents, you will see a structure to them. The beginning is always about the law, qua law. I will take readers always within a theme of whatever it was that the law said and how it developed and why. So I will always have that within a theme. So but the why is important. The why is always important. And I explain it and I show it step by step what this case said, why it said it, what it set up, what came next. And I take people to where I'm leading them and saying, um, this is what the right legal answer should be. If I'm in the majority, then it is. If I'm a dissenter, then I have to explain why it's important. Not why it was important as it was happening, but why it's important today. And to do that, you have to actually take yourself out of your own shoes and put yourself in the shoes of other people who don't know enough as of what you know and think about what will move them, what could be important enough to them to for them to understand the point I'm trying to make. And that's what I do in explaining virtually every story. I try to think of how are readers absorbing this information and what's going to touch them or motivate them to think about this in a different way. And and how do you think about motivation? Like what's, break that one down. Well, let me give you an example from, um, from Just Ask that's going to come up. There's a Tourette's child um, featured in one of the vignettes. And it happens to be um, based on a child I happen to know. And one day, as you may know, Tourette's is a syndrome where a child has um, uncontrollable, makes uncontrollable sounds or movements. And they simply have no control over what their body is doing. Some Tourette's children, not particularly the one that I feature in my book, curse uncontrollably. They just can't stop cursing. Um, others make loud sounds or unusual sounds. Some move, twirl around and move around constantly. It, it just depends on what neurological effect the Tourette's has on them. And my friend's child was running around in the, in the store, not able to stand still for a period of time. And she bumped into a woman who turned to her and said, you misbehaved child, doesn't your mother know how to control you? And my friend's daughter um, went up to her and said, I certainly don't need to control her. You need to be a little bit more gracious. And took her child and um, stormed out of the store. When I wrote that vignette, you will see that what I talk about is the child explaining to an adult that when they see her doing unusual movements, or things, it's not because she's misbehaving. 
It's because she can't control her body. And so that vignette was me both in her mother's shoes and in her shoes. And in your shoes. And in my shoes. And so you really do have to look at more than your own perspective. I think that's the way to touch people's hearts. And I think that that's what my supervisor years ago spoke about, speaking with enough passion that you can make people who don't agree with you pause for a moment, force well, them to be human. Well, Justice Sotomayor, Sotomayor, I am so happy you took time out of your day to talk to me. I know you're extremely busy and... I'm personally looking forward to, for your book, Just Ask, be different, be brave, be you, to come out in September. And I'm looking forward to it. And again, I'm honored you came on the James Altucher Show. Thank you, James. This has been a delight. Thank you. are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.